Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. The banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison, it will continue. gentlemen boys and girls around the world gather around it's time for another exciting episode of thriller insider today is april 18th 2021 and we are talking that's right the texas a&m bitcoin conference 2021 this is the day one recap yeah it went on for two days friday and saturday i, mean, I want to say it was like at least 10 hours long seriously there's so much content there um we had a lot of speakers from all over the place. Um, Tim Draper, Ray Dalio, Glenn Hutchins, Rob Kaplan, Michael Saylor, gosh, Jimmy Song, Parker Lewis, Travis Kling, Pompliano. Uh, I mean, geez, I mean, there's just so many people. Uh, it was all, it was, it was just so many people. Yeah. Uh, it was one of those things where like, we literally had that Bitcoin meetup on Thursday, right? And then this came right that morning. Uh, I went ahead and watched the whole thing. It was crazy, crazy, crazy long. A lot of stuff came out that day. By the time that was over, it was just so much to, to sift through. Just a lot of editing. The next day, full on record, right? Watching all of that, so much to sift through. And then today is finally able to put it all together for y'all. So that's what we're doing today. We're, we're finally presenting it for y'all. This is the best of what we could find on day one. I, I really wanted just to bring you the nuggets because there's just some really good stuff here that came out of this conference because, yeah, it's uh, really bullish. So just a little bit about this conference. This is the first year they've ever had it. Uh, there's been a Texas Bitcoin conference in the past. Um, I've just never seen one. Um, here at AM. I've seen one at UT, um, but it was more kind of crypto blockchain-ish. There's never been a Bitcoin-centric conference uh, at a university here in Texas. This is the first of its kind. And it, honestly, this is a significant push to bring the Bitcoin industry into our state. This is what they're trying to do. And this conference speaks to all the community of students, faculty, and former students and the general public about Bitcoin. Um, that's what they're trying to do here at College Station. Um, 
And of course, this is presented by the Maze Innovation Research Center there at College Station. And uh, hopefully this will bring over um, multiple companies and multiple, uh, I guess you could say, um, new legislation for Texas that could benefit a lot of people that uh, are investing in Bitcoin. So we'll see if that uh, kind of comes to light. Um, but I mean, I'm really excited <laughs> to see, uh, you know, what, what occurs after this, because there was a lot of people attending this conference, not only live, um, but also remote. So with that, let's kind of give you kind of the introduction um, of, of how much impact this really has for the students and faculty there at Texas A&M, because it's good to kind of get a good, clear picture of, of just what this means um, for them. And this is going to be probably like a good, you know, 10 minute kind of, you know, um, lift me up kind of spirit thing. But if you want to skip it, you can. But uh, I thought it'd be good to just kind of give you a little background about A&M and why this conference was created. And um, I think it's good. It's good for the kids out there. <laughs> Welcome to the first ever Texas A&M Bitcoin Conference. My name is Karok Ray. I'm an economist and a professor at the Mays Business School. Over the next two days, this conference aims to understand the current state and the future of Bitcoin. Here at Texas A&M, I direct the Mays Innovation Research Center, an academic center that I founded in 2017. Its mission is to understand the true nature of innovation, where it happens, why it works, how it makes markets and society more free. We fund faculty and student research on innovation and distribute this knowledge through conferences such as this one. My views here are my own and not that of Texas A&M. So let me be blunt. No analysis of innovation today would be complete without Bitcoin, one of the most radical technologies of our time. In 2007, I was teaching at the University of Chicago, and I left to answer my call to service to join the Council of Economic Advisors in the Bush White House. I saw firsthand the government's fiscal and monetary response to the last financial crisis. For central bankers, easy money has benefits that are immediate, but costs that are distant. I witnessed an inevitable bias towards expanding the supply of money. This is not a criticism of any specific individual, but my observation of the incentives within our existing political institutions. Ironically, printing money induces the very behavior whose consequences the policy was intended to address. Bitcoin emerged as one possible solution to this problem, using technology to create decentralized digital scarcity. 
This conference is about Bitcoin specifically rather than blockchain generally. Bitcoin is the largest cryptocurrency by market cap and has the most mature code base. But more than that, Bitcoin is the original blockchain, a zero to one innovation uniquely invented to be scarce for the use case of digital payments. For some, Bitcoin is a curiosity. For others, it's an investment. And for still others, a revolution. We host this conference at the greatest university in the greatest state of our republic. This is no accident. Bitcoin shares many of the same bedrock principles as Texas, a foundation of the individual as the source of collective strength, an understanding that arriving at truth requires hard work, both in time and energy, a recognition that security matters because not everyone has good intentions. These principles underlie as much the halls of our campus as they do the nodes of the blockchain. We seek a healthy debate of ideas around the future of Bitcoin. That future rests in the hands of our students. This conference emerged out of the Texas A&M Bitcoin Club, of which I am the faculty advisor. Two students launched the club in the desire to learn more about this new technology. And it is the students that I would like all of our speakers to ultimately address. Their opportunities, their possibilities, their future innovations. My name is Carlton Orange and I'm class of 2021. I'm getting my master's in real estate here at the Mays Business School. We practice every day, every single day. And we're doing four by 600s today. Growing up, I've always been a student athlete. And uh, in the 2007-2008 financial crisis, uh, my family really suffered heavily. And so I really wanted to understand why the market went up and down. And that kind of gave me my interest in economics. Well, I was a transfer student. And upon trying to figure out where I was going to go to, uh, I was deciding between you know, better track teams or better academics. And I figured that A&M was the best choice for both of those options. Because not only would I be training with world champion Donovan Brazier, but I'd also be in the Mays Business School. When I got to the Mays Business School, I didn't really know what to expect. I took Finance 341, and it was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken in my life. And I just really liked how it made me dig deep into my brain and go to the library and it's really stretched me to be the best academic person I could be and that's why I really love Mays Business School because not only does it provide me with connections that I'm going to be able to use for the rest of my life but it stretched me to be the best version of myself that I could possibly be. When I was younger I would always see stories about how athletes would make all this money but then a couple years later end up broke and I would always wonder how that could be the case. So I noticed that a lot of individuals, especially in college, don't have the financial literacy that they need in order to be you know, adults. In my free time, I gather a group of individuals who want to learn about financial literacy and I teach it to them. Teaching individuals financial literacy gives me the same or similar fulfillment as my dad would get when he puts a client into a house. And I realized that finding my purpose isn't about money, but rather providing value to others. Behind this neat and clean image is a lot of pressure. I get a lot of pressure from not only my coaches, but my family to do well. But I think most of the pressure comes from myself because I wanted to be the best that I can be. And when I see myself not fulfilling those expectations, I get down. And so I have to just work on that. When you relax, 
your muscles and your mind are able to think clearly. And when you're trying too hard, you tense up. And when you do that over a long period of time, you won't be able to get the same results. Texas A&M track is a lot of work. It's not just a, let me just run fast this meet. It's a, I have six months to train. I have to do something right every single day. And I think that's what creates so much discipline. How do I stay motivated? I just think to the 100 year old me, and he regretted if I didn't give him my all. So that's what I try to do every day. One of the great things that's come from my track career is having the opportunity to train for the Olympics, especially on one of the greatest teams in the nation. In 2019, I placed fourth at the NCAA Championships, running 146.40. And over the past few years, I was able to get stronger, faster, and mentally just more capable. And so with those improvements, I see myself being a great candidate to go to Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Olympics would mean everything to me. Um, I would be representing my family, God, you know, myself, and May's Business School when I'm running in the Olympics, just because it's a culmination of a dream. So to anyone that wants to be serious about business or wants to expand their brand, I would really recommend May's Business School just because of the connections you can make coupled with the strong academic performance. I know the Masters of Real Estate program is ranked number two globally as a real estate program. So the connections and the knowledge you'll have, employers know. You'll come out of May's Business School prepared for the real world. So right at the top of the conference, they really did a pretty cool thing. Um, they did a Bitcoin 101, and it was kind of just a primer of explaining Bitcoin and its properties and, and what it is and why it's important. And I thought for an hour, uh, for the first 60 minutes, it was a really good um, kind of understanding of what Bitcoin is and, and why it's important, right? Um, and Dan Held did it. Dan Held is... Um, is a very, um, I guess, educated Bitcoiner uh, in the space. Um, he's is I think he's like works for Kraken, but he's like um, I forget I forget what he does at Kraken. <laughs> but um, I took a, I, I didn't want to play the whole thing because uh, I felt like uh, you know there's so many good nuggets in there. But 
I took a little piece of, of something that he shared here um, because this really, you know, kind of uh, encapsulates why Satoshi um, built Bitcoin. And, um, and, and I thought this was really magical uh, with the way he said it here. Um, and I, I love the way he ended it here, uh, giving praise to Hal Finney. You know, I, I thought it was really touching. So take a listen. Reserve currency status doesn't last forever. And when we look at the survivor, like the how, how long different currencies survive, we see that inevitably each one dies over time. Now, I've been presumptive here by having Bitcoin take over from the U.S. Um, but a lot of folks, especially Aggies, don't realize that the U.S.'s dominance in the, in the world as a monetary authority has only existed for, you know, 100 years. And there were countries that had this before. Um, and if we're going along the species analogy here, extinction can be most simply described as the failure of a species to compete in an environment to such a degree that it eventually ceases to exist. Um, and usually what occurs there is that there are two primary causes of why it goes extinct, increased competition from a superior species or a dramatic change in environment. And instead of becoming anti-fragile, which is the property of going stronger or in a volatile or more stressful environment, central banks have essentially removed danger and mortality from failure, which causes competition to stagnate or degrade. And sometimes these stressors are so strong that they are fatal for a species of money. Um, and so Bitcoin has been perfectly honed for its environment. Bitcoin uh, was created with exceptional genetic code, which manifested itself in the form of traits. Um, and essentially this gives Bitcoin the apex, it makes Bitcoin the apex predator of money. Um, that's what Satoshi built Bitcoin for was to be a superior money than all previous monies before it. And, uh, the next section we're going to go into, uh, so this first section was about species. So, uh, Satoshi carefully selected Bitcoin's genetic code to be the superior species of money. Now we're going to go into season. So in what season did Satoshi plant Bitcoin? 
This is a really amazing quote that I love from Satoshi that I think highlights exactly why Bitcoin is valuable. Uh, Satoshi wrote this as the first thing he wrote right after he published the white paper. So when he published the source code to make Bitcoin run and get the network up and running, this is what he presented. The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency, but history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Banks must be trusted to hold their money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in waves of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserve. And these two quotes, I think, are very poetic, coming from Henry Paulson, uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and he was there during the 2008 financial crisis, and he was a former Goldman Sachs CEO. He says, I believe the root cause of every financial crisis, the root cause, is flawed government policies. And then Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, in the absence of the gold standard, there is no way to protect savings from confiscation through inflation. There is no safe store of value. And when we look at, you know, Bitcoin over time and why it's important, when we look at inflation, so this was an incredible report put together by Deutsche Bank. If we look at inflation over time, over 800 years of recorded financial history, never before have we seen such incredible inflation. And that was since the Fed was created uh, over 100 years ago. And when you see distortions like this, we are in one of the largest distortions ever created in the market, which is uh, absolutely wild. Now, when looking at the U.S. dollar, um, you know, when we look at the dollar, when we look at the Roman denarius, when we look at every single fiat currency over time, the temptation to print money is irresistible. And so fiat continually loses value. This chart represents the purchasing power of a U.S. dollar starting from, uh, or, you know, 100 years ago. And when we think about it this way, it's like, what can one dollar buy you? Um, back then, a dollar could buy you a lot. A dollar could maybe buy you like a week's worth of food. Now a dollar can barely buy you a soda. And that over time represented the huge devaluation of currency. Um, you just didn't notice it, notice it because it was very, very gradual over time. Bitcoin was planted in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis. Satoshi waited until this perfect moment to plant Bitcoin when trust had been lost in a system that ran on trust. Bitcoin was an antidote to poor central banking policies. It was meant to solve this problem of trusting institutions. 2008 clearly demonstrated that there were huge breaches of that trust, huge breaches in fiduciary responsibility. And so Satoshi wanted to rebuild a new system using Bitcoin. I like this picture because it's a it's uh, this picture is of a boy reading a book in a bombed out bookstore in London during the uh, Blitz in World War II. Um, I've got a feeling that this is how the cypherpunks who I'm about to cover next felt when they read Satoshi's writing. They went, this is what we've been looking for this whole time. These are the cypherpunks. So these are a few of them. There's many more, but these are the popular ones and the ones that I think folks should at least know of. Um, you've got Adam Back in the upper right. He's the inventor of Hashcash, which was the proof of early proof of work system that Bitcoin was eventually based on. You've got Wei Dai, who published B Money, an anonymous distributed electronic cash system. Nick Zabo, a very popular candidate for Satoshi. Uh, Nick Zabo designed a, a currency called BitGold, and it was never implemented, but uh, Satoshi said that his inspiration was from BitGold and B Money, which is from Wei Dai. Uh, you've got David Chom, who founded Digicash, 
a form of centralized electronic money uh, that deployed the same sort of cryptographic principles that Bitcoin had. Um, that he called Chami and eCash. And then finally, Hal Finney. Hal Finney also worked on proof of work systems with Adam Back. Not with Adam Back, but in separately. They, their, their insight into that were the precursor, was the precursor towards uh, before Bitcoin came out. Um, he also wrote PGP and uh, cryptography. So PGP uh, is a popular encryption method used to use for secure, secure communication. Uh, Hal Finney is definitely a favorite amongst crypto folks as being Satoshi. up we had probably uh a, i think the showstopper <laughs> michael staler uh you know he's he's somebody now that you have to have uh, at a bitcoin conference when you have bitcoin conferences uh he is um yeah he's he's the real deal <laughs> he just is right uh laser eyes and all and uh what's great about michael is he holds nothing back. That's what I. That's what I love about this man. Uh, he speaks the truest, uh, you know, form of of Bitcoin knowledge, uh, just kind of seeping out of him. And uh, he has the highest conviction uh, that I've ever seen from 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 an individual that that got in so late, but understands it so well. Um, so. He talks about Bitcoin, but uh, not only does he talk about Bitcoin, but he also really dives into kind of the speculation of what Facebook, Amazon and Google are going to do about it. And he really gives some interesting tells there and it gets my wheels all kinds of turning and it makes you really think of what the future holds for Bitcoin here in the next, I would say, three to four years, um, because a lot of what he's sharing here sounds like viable solutions uh, for these companies. Uh, and I'm sure some of them have to be listening, right? Uh, um, because he's shared this multiple times in, in other uh, venues. So um, just a brilliant, um, you know, you know, just speaking by him here. So take a listen. Thank you. 
Well, I, I think that uh, the world's full of companies that hold assets. Uh, they're financial companies. We call it Wall Street. So after March, we had a, what we call a K-shaped recovery. And what the K-shaped recovery means is every company on the planet that has assets recovered rapidly. And every company that didn't have assets that actually generated products with manual labor uh, or machinery, they didn't recover. <laughs> and so uh, if your company is an asset-rich company, then in an expanding, expanding monetary environment, then you've got a wind blowing to your back. And if you're a manufacturing company, when the monetary supply is expanding, the wind is blowing to your face. So I guess that's another way of saying there are plenty of companies that have asset strategies. They're the ones that are succeeding on Wall Street. And the ones that don't have asset strategies are going to struggle and, and probably fail if they don't actually modify their corporate strategy. I think that we're one of the early movers in this space, but uh, it's, it really is kind of a it's not really a tenable situation in an economy where the currency is collapsing, right? You, the only way that you can continue your university, your family, or your company is to have an endowment, which is going to appreciate in the face of currency debasement. So uh, bottom line is no, we don't intend uh, to uh, <clears throat> surrender the capital any more than, say, your university would surrender its endowment or your family would surrender their life savings. You know, it would be devastating for the university. It'd be devastating for the family. It's devastating for a corporation. I would actually go so far as to say the wave of consolidations and bankruptcies in the public market over the past uh, 10 to 20 years is because the monetary policy has been inflating and conventional treasury strategy is not to invest in, uh, in high quality assets. And so the capital structures of all those companies has been, uh, has been uh, collapsing. And as the capital structures collapse, the companies uh, are pushed toward insolvency. And that's what's driven them into selling themselves or going private uh, throughout the industry. And in my particular, industry, 99% of the companies I competed with were driven out of the business. Like it's a, it's a high mortality rate and you could, and, and one dynamic is competition, but the other dynamic is the weakening currency, which is eroding the capital structures of the company such that they can't compete. You know, if hyper-Bitcoinization happens, what, what ends up, what ends up uh, happening at the end of this road, you know, Lots of other companies buy into uh, into Bitcoin to store their treasuries. Perhaps some central banks do it. You know what? What does that end of that road look like? I think we've got a five hundred trillion dollar monetary planet. The outer hundred trillion dollar gaseous layer is currencies, primarily the U.S. dollar, the euro, the yen, the Chinese yuan, or the stronger ones. Uh, there's a hundred weak ones. I think that. Uh, <clears throat> The next layer is a layer of, uh, of real estate, commercial real estate, and then a layer of companies, which we, we value as own as stocks, and then a layer of credit or, or corporate debt and sovereign debt. And uh, that makes up something $400 trillion worth of stuff, a little bit more solid. Then uh, the core, hard core is a $10 trillion core of gold and precious metals. 
And then the very center of the planet is a trillion dollar burning molten core of Bitcoin. And that is expanding 800% this year, expanding 200% on average every year for the past decade. That burning core, which we call Bitcoin, is going to keep growing until it uh, subsumes gold and then is going to suck monetary energy from uh, low yielding debt, from money market funds, from index funds of equities, from other stores of value, from savings instruments, from from other kinds of annuities until it becomes $100 trillion or more, and then it will grow slower, the entire rest of the monetary system is going to reorient around the Bitcoin. That's what I think will happen. So the end game is individuals, corporations, insurance companies, banks, governments, they all start to... uh, to transform, digitally transform their balance sheet from analog store of value assets like debt uh, and precious metals to a digital store of value, Bitcoin. And as they digitally transform those balance sheets, the entire monetary system reorients around uh, a more uh, mathematically sound, more thermodynamically sound uh, monetary asset. That's what I expect to happen over the next 10 to 20 years uh, with aggressive growth in the next decade and then progressive growth in the following decade. With Bitcoin, the difference between Bitcoin and dollars is that you don't really need any uh, third-party institution to hold your, uh, to hold your capital or, or, or you know, spending money. You don't have to go to anyone to say, uh, I'd like to withdraw and then go spend it at a store. But uh, with Bitcoin, you can just have it statically held on, on, a, on a hard wallet. What do you think this will do to... Uh, banks over time? And do you think um, people will elect to keep most of their Bitcoin with custodians or will they have it on their own hard wallets uh, um, where they don't necessarily gain uh, any interest, but it's it's uh, safe? I think there's a, there's a, going to be a massive uh, explosion of innovation in the banking sector. All the major banks are going to incorporate some kind of Bitcoin-related assets into their offerings, Bitcoin funds, Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin uh, loans and yield accounts and credit lines and the like. But I think you'll see the entry of big tech into the banking industry. You've already seen it with Square and with actually Square, PayPal, and Coinbase. Those three companies are in fact banks and they have a collective market capitalization of 500 billion dollars those three companies so what happens next i think you'll see apple facebook google and maybe amazon become banks and uh it's what happens when a billion people decide that they want to move some bitcoin to their iphone and use multi-factor authentication and upload it to the iCloud? You know, Apple became a movie company. Apple became a music company. Apple became a communications company. Apple became a photo company. Apple sold your videos. What's the next thing? You know, if Apple becomes a bank, maybe Apple would like to have trillions of dollars of assets in the iCloud. And so if Apple decides to do that, then Facebook probably would prefer to do that first because that becomes pretty critical. And if Facebook, if Facebook does it, Google maybe needs to do it. And if Google does it before Apple does it, you know, then maybe that shifts the balance of power. And of course, Amazon's watching all of that. And so is Microsoft. 
So I think that you're going to see big tech enter the banking industry. You're going to see ferocious innovation uh, like we've never seen before. And uh, and ultimately, they're going to spread. Uh, you know, what is a mo- what is a bank in the future in the 21st century? A bank is a mobile application with an asset layer and a currency layer. And it's we're destined to see eight billion people with two, three, four of those banking applications on their mobile phones. And the banks will be competing with each other to offer credit lines, savings accounts, better payments. You know, and of course, across every jurisdiction, you know, you're going to have a, a bank that's complying in the U.S. but won't be complying in Nigeria. There'll be a ferocious competition and you'll see all sorts of other sorts of uh, cross-border banks. Um, that's what I think will happen. It'll be a free-for-all, very interesting, and, uh, and, and very competitive. Like if we come back to Facebook, Apple, Google, they could give you um, a mobile app that holds one Bitcoin and give you a credit line, and you could basically spend money on the credit line forever, borrowing against the Bitcoin and so you'll see you'll see maybe the mobile app companies crash into the credit card business and crash into the banking bit. What wouldn't you like just to have if you had 100,000 in Bitcoin, you could basically spend $10,000 a year forever or $20,000 a year forever and never pay it back. So so I think that um, you're going to see uh, traditional credit card, traditional banking disrupted. You're going to see mobile apps become credit lines, become banks. On the other hand, I think you'll see a massive disruption in mutual funds and in insurance. Uh, For example, if I give you a life insurance policy, it could pay 100x more than it currently pays if I fund it in Bitcoin. Or I could flip it and say, I'm going to reinvest your premiums in Bitcoin, but I'm going to cut the cost of the life insurance by a factor of 10. And so I think, and by the way, if you... If the life insurance company doesn't do it, maybe the maybe Facebook will become your life insurance provider, or maybe Amazon will. Um, so, I think that uh, lots of uh, lots of business models can be upended. I also think uh, you can cross borders now, right? There's no reason why an American company couldn't provide a credit line to someone in Africa, in any country in the world. Because Bitcoin is cross-jurisdictional, 24-7 collateral. If you post one Bitcoin with me from any country on Earth, I could give you, you know, a a $10,000 loan at 4% interest and and be comfortable with that cross-border. So I think that that it's logical to think that big tech will get bigger. Um, if big tech doesn't embrace this, then, new, for example, Square is adding, what, a million new customers a month, maybe more. So the longer that Facebook doesn't do this and the longer that Apple doesn't do this, the bigger Square gets. And then, you know, there's some places Square doesn't operate, but that opens up the possibility for a company in Africa, Asia or Europe to do what Square isn't doing in their jurisdiction. So. So I, I think we'll see this, this era of entrepreneurship. We'll have global banking, very competitive, global money markets, very competitive, and a global security market in, you know, that's energy fueled. It's very competitive. And anybody anywhere on earth can choose to enter into any of those markets if they want to, because there's, there's rules, but there's no 
you know, rulers, right? There's, there's no gatekeepers in this. It's open protocol. And whoever is the most aggressive with the best technology that brings the most assets to bear can get big fast. So now it's time for probably one of the most frustrating uh, panels that I've ever had to endure. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Uh, I, I've been to a lot of these conferences um, and then it seems like this past year I've had to watch a lot of them, um, you know, via via teleconference. But um, this is this is the most frustrating one I've ever had to endure. Um and I'm sharing it because I, I think it's important. Um, I also I also feel like in the crypto news and the Bitcoin news cycle that that was taking place Friday and Saturday. Uh, I haven't seen anything today uh, on Sunday, but there was a lot of um, bullish news that came out about Ray Dalio talking positive about Bitcoin. That is not what took place, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, he said some he said some okay things about Bitcoin, but nowhere was there great things uh, that he said about Bitcoin. Uh, I think at this point he has um, acknowledged Bitcoin. I think that's a safe determination. He has to acknowledge it so he doesn't look like an idiot in front of his peers. Um, I think he hasn't even looked at it, to be quite honest with you. I don't think he has even spent more than an hour looking at it. I think he has uh, had somebody sit down with him and explain it to him for probably like 20 minutes, it seems. Um, and then that's it. I don't know why he was at this conference. <laughs> I don't I don't understand why he's going to be at consensus this year at, Co at Coindesk. Um, I, I really feel like there's some times where I, I, I hear him talk and he sounds such out of touch with what's going on in the uh, Bitcoin space and the crypto space 
that I feel like time has passed them by. Um, and I, I, that's because I have a lot of respect for Ray, uh, you know, just as uh, as a person and, and, and a philanthropist that he's done, you know, for society. And just the amount of knowledge that, you know, that he shared with everybody. And I've learned so much from him throughout the years. But these past 18 months, since he's been kind of talking more and more about Bitcoin, I just realized that he... You know, I think one of the it's the thing. I think it's very important when you don't know anything about a subject, you probably should stay quiet about it, right? Or you should probably go do some research before you go out and start talking about it, and do conferences on it, um, or even do anything like that. Um, I, I don't know why the crypto and Bitcoin news uh, media is trying to. Um, display this kind of like exuberance behind Ray and, and why they're trying to make it seem like he's bullish on Bitcoin, because that's not what I hear at all. I'm going to go ahead and play you the first clip uh, of this, of where he talks about Bitcoin and gold and where we are in this quote unquote cycle that he keeps talking about. And uh, when he talks about this quote unquote cycle, uh, he means the collapse <laughs> of the monetary system. He just, uh, Try to say it in a nice way. Um, this was this was a uh, this was called Bitcoin as an asset class. Ray Dalio, Joe Doling, and Britt Harris. Britt Harris, tremendous uh, moderator here. Um, I'm gonna look more into this guy. I was really impressed uh, with Britt Harris. Had never heard of him before, and, and he's um, I think he's well into his 60s or maybe in the 70s, and I've never heard of this financial he seemed like really really uh just intelligent uh about about finance and i and you can tell he's just like leaps and and bounds uh, ahead of ray when it comes to bitcoin um but uh take a listen as ray dalio talks about all of that In 1971, I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and on August 15th, 1971, um, on a Sunday night, uh, President Nixon announced that um, we would no longer, people or countries, could no longer get the gold that was behind 
the money. The United States would default on gold. And I walked onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange the next morning, and I thought the stock market would be down a lot. I mean, what a crisis. Money isn't money. And um, and it was up the most in something like 20 years. And I didn't understand what happened. And then I looked back in history and I found that the same exact thing happened on March 5th, 1933, for the same reason. They produced a lot of money. They severed gold and so on. So um, about um, in 2008, 9, 10, 11, uh, when we had zero interest rates and before that, I wanted to study going back. And over the last couple of years, uh, the way things were going, I wanted to study reserve currencies, the rise and declines of reserve currencies and their empires behind them. And that took me back uh, 500 years because there was the Dutch Empire, uh, followed by the British Empire and the American Empire. And with those, their reserve currencies and so on. And then I went back uh, farther in history. And there are these same cycles. And I think it's important to understand, you know, what it is and, and those cycles. And in a big picture way, um, you know, through history, um, back into the Old Testament and so on, um, there are uh, real uh, things that one wants to buy. They have, they have, you know, intrinsic value, the things you buy um, and um, their uh, money. Um, would be have intrinsic value. Gold and silver had intrinsic value, but you go way back and so on. And most of the major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, outlawed um, the second type of money, which was claims on um, the, the, the real stuff. That's what banks are. Um, you know, you can have a certain amount of real money, used to be gold or silver, or even sometimes copper, you would have that real money. And then claims on that money would become a lot greater than there was actual real money. And through that, we've gone through cycles and those cycles haven't stopped. And, you know, that's where we um, are today. And so there are three types, kind of, I think, three types of real money. There's the things that have intrinsic value. It may, may be gold or it may be other things, you know, the things we want to buy. And then there are lots of claims that get built up, mostly debt claims, credit claims, because it's an asset, financial assets, that bonds and, and so on. That is also debt that somebody wants to buy. And so what we've seen that happened in uh, March 1933 and happened in 1971, happened really on April 8th and 9th, uh, when we produced a lot of debt and a lot of money. So we're in that particular cycle, three types of money. The first is that it has intrinsic value. The second is that it has imputed value, second type of money. You know, I was actually in Yap, which is a little place in Micronesia, and um, they have these big blocks of stone which are carved out, and, um, uh, that, and that's, uh, that, that was money. And to give you an idea, um, they were transporting this, one of these, from one island to another in a wooden canoe, and it sank. But the claim to that sunk piece of stone was viewed as 
still having intrinsic value and they would trade it for real things. And so that's that kind of money. And then there's um, then there's fiat money and fiat money is, um, as you know, probably everybody here knows um, it's uh, the claim to get the IOUs that, that, that the central banks can print. And so I think where we are in this cycle, we have to know where we are in the cycle, is um, through history, we've seen that when we have um, not enough money, when governments don't have enough money uh, to need, um, and when you're faced with a sort of a debt crisis, that you have to produce a lot of debt and money and distribute that. And we're doing that in a big way, particularly when there's a large uh, wealth gap. So I think where we are in the cycle um, is at a point where intrinsic money or hard money um, is something to pay attention to because there's all these claims. Now, just imagine what we all think about financial assets, but a financial asset, um, you're holding financial assets with the belief that you can sell it, get cash and buy what you want. Um, but of course you can't because there's too much of that. And so where I think in that part of the cycle, and as we look forward to the supply and the demand for money, we're going to produce a lot more debt. We're going to produce a lot more money. And therefore, uh, the time for something like that has intrinsic values limited in supply um, certainly is appropriate. Then there's the question of what that means and whether the imputed value. So that's certainly true of uh, gold. And then, then uh, Bitcoin has um, proven in many ways itself as being, um, you know, wow, it's taken the stress test of hadn't been hacked. The, uh, the programming works. Um, people are holding it and adopting it now. Uh, what that means uh, for the value of it, you know, I think there are other people here, just as long as they're looking at it without bias, uh, you know, who knows more about it. The way I look at it is, um, you know, there's about a little over, let's say, Bitcoin, a little over a trillion dollars worth of it. Um, in terms of gold, if you take out central bank reserves, because I don't think central banks are ever going to own Bitcoin as an asset, I don't think. People can argue with that, but given what I know about them, I don't think so. Um, and take out jewelry use. There's about $5 trillion in gold. And uh, so it's now about 20% of the portfolio. And I think the real question is, as we go forward, is how much of that as a storehold of wealth um, exists and how much should it be as part of uh, the portfolio? It's proven a place. I like the diversification of um, those kinds of assets at this time. And, um, you know, that uh, natural selection process is also called Gresham's Law, that bad money drives out uh, good money and because people want to hold the good money. And so we're, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, to me, it, it's got merit. But the question is, um, how diversified are Bitcoin owners into gold and how are and what are the other storeholds of wealth and what percentage of the pie will it occupy? And I'll leave that to you and others. Um, but that's kind of my thoughts in a nutshell.
so after he talks about that, it gets really, <laughs> it gets really, really strange, really, really fast. Um, Ray goes from playing it tame, right? Playing it tame. Um, and then he ratchets it up, right? And, and mind you, this is a conference where we have Ray Dalio, um, you know, a, a Federal Reserve uh, chairman <laughs> from Dallas, uh, Dan Held, <laughs> Michael Saylor. You have all sorts of people, right? Uh, uh, and so you have Dan Held in the beginning talking about how banks screwed up everything. Satoshi was trying to fix this, right? I'm sure all these other guys are hearing this, right? Um, at a certain point, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure this is ticking off Ray, right? This has to be in the back of his mind, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sure he hates this, right? Because um, at the at the at his core, ladies and gentlemen, he's a fiat maximalist. I, I, you know, and I think most people who hold securities and hold bonds and, and the like and have been doing that for as long as Ray. And I, I don't honestly don't blame him. Um, that'd be like me, you know, 50 years from now or 30 years from now, um, still holding Bitcoin. And and then there's like a, a new thing going on that all the, the kids love. And uh, me still talking about how Bitcoin's the greatest, right? Uh, yeah, I, I could totally see that, right? The world changed and I just am still stuck on this thing. I get it, right? But for whatever reason, <laughs> Ray just couldn't hold it in any longer. So what does he do? And I, and I tweeted this out on Friday. I couldn't believe he said what he said because there's kids watching live uh, uh, right. Not only uh, at College Station in in the in, in the in the in the convention center, but but also at home. I'm sitting there watching this. I hear what he says, and I, I just couldn't believe that he said that. Um, and then right when he says that, his phone starts going off. <laughs> it was like somebody was telling him, like, stop, <laughs> like, don't say that. But he couldn't help himself. Why? Because he's a fiat maximalist. He's stuck in that old system. He, he can't help it. And then right after he, he does that, he goes into what he always does. He starts shilling Chinese securities because Ray and, his, and his, uh, his fund is heavy, 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 heavy bags of Chinese securities. They're very pro-China. Um, this is not a secret. You just go out, just go out and look, right? This is something that we've talked about in the past. Uh, you know, this is not me slandering anything. Like, this is just the truth. This is how it's reported. <laughs> I'm just reporting it to y'all. Um, and this is what isn't covered in, in, the, in the crypto and Bitcoin news section <laughs> when they talk about Ray Dalio. They don't want to give you the truth because it hurts, right? Uh, it's not good, right? Because they're trying to court him into this space. But I'm telling you like it is. This is what's going on. He couldn't help himself. And, and, and this is what he said. So take a listen and then take a listen to him shilling Chinese securities right afterwards.
It's it's the craziest 360 in the same panel that I've ever seen. Um, I don't understand why this is a Bitcoin conference and why people are so focused on Bitcoin as much as <clears throat> an anti-fiat currency crisis. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. My phone because, ran because, off. Because, because, off. Yeah, because the reason um, is because biggest anti-currency for a crisis right now. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is, I think the, um, we have, in my opinion, a very major uh, classic fiat monetary crisis of sorts emerging because of a combination of the amount of debt that needs to be created for and monetized and where we are in the cycle for all the reasons that we can go into. And I would worry for investors either who are anti-Bitcoin or pro-Bitcoin that they're not looking at um, what do they hold and why isn't this just an anti-fiat monetary crisis and shouldn't you hold a properly balanced, diversified portfolio of assets that are going to then protect you against that. Because if you concentrate in any one asset, whether that's gold or whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's other things, um, I think that there are a lot of risks that are intrinsic intrinsic in that. Um, others can speak to it, but I've, I mean, I could list a lot of Bitcoin risks and everybody can. And so the real question I think that you should ask, Britt, or for your institution and that other investors is how much do you have as a diversified portfolio against um, the devaluation of the bonds and the debt that you have and the devaluation of the currency and how well diversified is that anti-cash, anti-fiat currency portfolio among the things that are available in it. Yeah. So we're in a situation now where, where the fiat system is fragile, um, but it's, it, um, and now I'm going to interpret that as, you know, there, you talked about an alternative currency. This may be it or may not be it. But, no, but the main thing I'm trying to say, well, the main thing I'm trying to say is I think the conference should, I mean, think conferences and individuals should not be so focused on the one thing, the one magical thing, because I don't think there's one magical thing and you put too much into it. And if you're putting the amount that um, is being described, I, I don't think you could look at past returns and consider them indica indicative or even the volatility is indicative. Put right. that yeah. aside and just basically just say, um, how many bonds do you have? Why the hell are you holding bonds? Well, how much cash do you have? Why the hell are you holding cash? That's somebody's debt and they're going to print a lot of that. And then, okay, then what is that thing that can have a comparable diversifying impact on your portfolio? That's a well-diversified portfolio of assets that will uh, protect you against the things we're probably all concerned about. Yeah, and that's, that's and that, you know, for people who are, who are, you know, the original purpose of Bitcoin. I, I personally think that's exactly what's happening. So let's let's talk about the role of currencies in, in international 
um, competitive uh, areas. So like our currency competes against other people's currencies and it establishes our relative standard of living. And, uh, and it also for the US dollar. You know, so when people are saying the fiat systems are in trouble, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of a genetic thing all over the world. But if the US fiat system is in trouble, then we're talking about over, a, hopefully, you know, if it even happens over a couple of decades, what's the, you know, the, the potential for the US dollar not to be the global reserve currency, you know, then relates to, do I want to be in the US dollar? Do I want to be out of the US dollar? And some people say they want to be, if that occurs, they want to be in, in uh, Bitcoin. So everybody, you know, we're in a global battle now. I just want you to remember the, the old China, uh, Japanese movies where two monsters came out of the sea and you got the young one, which is us, and the one coming back from the past is China versus us. And everybody in the world is going, okay, I'm going to just wait, see how this works out. So how, how do you think about digital, an alternative currency, if you don't want to focus specifically on Bitcoin, but an alternative currency in a situation like that, where we know there's going to be this massive vine of, um, for global preeminence between the dollar and the renminbi. I, I think just to look at the mechanics of it and the supply demand of it, um, look, uh, we're handing, there's this arc of a currency. And at the point we're producing a lot more debt because we have to give people checks. You know, you've got to give people money. And the federal government, the central government is not allowed to produce money, but it can direct it. And so for political reasons, for social reasons, all these reasons, they're giving out a lot more money. So that a lot more money, the central government means a lot more debt. So you have to sell that debt. And. Um, you have to sell that to a world um, out there. Most of uh, a lot of the debt is held by foreigners. And because the dollar was the world's reserve currency, um, by the way, dollar currency equals debt. Um, so if you hold um, a currency, that means you're holding a debt, whether it's a short term debt or a long term debt. But you're holding a promise to receive this paper money, essentially, that could be printed. And so what we have is a supply demand imbalance. We have to sell a lot more debt to a lot of those who are holding a lot of debt, too much debt in terms of their percentage. And those include places like China, which holds a trillion dollars of debt, and that you have to sell that and they don't want to buy that as much as they do. So if you don't have the demand that's large enough to buy the quantity that'll be sold, and we won't, then um, the central bank mechanistically is in a position where um, they will either see interest rates rise and having the rationing of that debt, which is negative for the economy and negative for financial assets, or they will print money and buy that debt. I, th I think they're going to print money and buy the debt. So now you have, if you think of the world, step back and think about international big sovereign wealth funds, central banks and the like. Um, you also have the emergence of an alternative place in the form of uh, China in terms of investment. 
Don't think in terms of just the currency, but the investment. So they've opened up their capital markets. Um, in 2015, you could invest in only 2% of those capital markets. Now you can invest in 60% of those capital markets. And they're offering um, um, higher yields and there's a balance of payments. So I think you're going to see um, a supply-demand problem in the United States and a relative movement. So if you take, let's say, a bond in China, um, it will it, it's more attractive in a sense for its interest rate and so on. So and then China is really um, on the lead in um, a digital currency, its own currency, and increasingly, I believe that will compete. So international investors and perhaps American investors will start to think, which one of those do I own? And then there'll be more choices. And that'll be a competitive environment. We haven't been in a competitive environment because the dollar has been the world's reserve currency. Now, I'm not saying that this shift is going to happen quickly, but in answer to your question, um, given the overweighted, already overweighted um, nature of portfolios around the world and everybody, and then uh, that's other supply, uh, and you look at bonds, which is dollars equal, like I, 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 if you're a pension fund, and how's the 60-40 working? You know, what are you going to get out of the 40? So you could get rather than not even not enough money to not enough demand to buy those bonds that are going to be sold. You could get selling of those bonds. And the, if you have the selling of those bonds, then the central bank will be put into a very difficult position of either having interest rates rise a lot or having to monetize as it's been happened before. Yeah, yes. This has yeah. all happened in history in the British yes. pound. So yeah. um, that's what that you your that's the answer to your question, in my opinion, about the supply and demand. And it won't be just uh, dollars and Bitcoin. Like tried to do everything he could to, you know, 
bringing that thing together. And uh, I didn't share anything from Joe Dowling, but he was pro Bitcoin. Um, uh, let's move on to the last panel I want to share, because these these four that I shared so far, uh, or this could be the fourth one, is with is with uh, Rob Kaplan. Uh, this is uh, the Federal Reserve chairman here in Dallas. Um, this guy surprised the heck out of me. Um, I was expecting somebody like Jerome Powell. Like, seriously, I was expecting this guy to, um, you know, to go there and um, be totally self-serving, be totally guarded, shielded about his answers, uh, not giving up anything. Uh, I think I think he knew who he was talking to. I think he unlike Ray, knew that he was talking to students, uh, knew he was talking to faculty, um, knew he was talking to a lot of his peers, um, and knew he was talking to uh, potential, you know, entrepreneurs that were looking to come to Texas and uh, start a business, right? Um, I really think this guy is a Bitcoiner. <laughs> I think this federal chairman, uh, just reading into what he said here, uh, he doesn't give too much away. I, I will say that right now. He doesn't really talk about Bitcoin till the end. Uh, he gives you kind of a macro. He paints you a macro picture of what's going on in the United States and here in Texas. Uh, he does it. He does it quite well. Uh, he doesn't hold anything back. Uh, a lot of the stuff we already kind of know, just because we 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 touched on it here recently on the geopolitics, uh, Bitcoin, um, and then. Uh, he gives you more of a uh, timeline what's happening here in 2021 and 2022. So I think that was just good nuggets there. Um, he talks about his his uh, and the Federal Reserve stance on Bitcoin. And um, yeah, I, you can tell he. I, I don't know, I get the feeling, I get the sense that when I heard him talking and I saw him talking, I get the feeling that he holds Bitcoin. That's just me. Um, I think Jerome Powell is the only one that is not saying anything, quite frankly. Uh, but like I've been saying for quite some time, um, I think the Federal Reserve is not stopping anybody from buying Bitcoin. They're not telling you not to buy it. Um, so to me, that's a good enough answer right there. Um it's kind of one thing to, for, for them to say, don't buy it. It's it's illegal or it's it's not a store of value. It has no properties like gold or anything. But um, they're saying the complete opposite now. Um, so it's it, to me, this this is a reason to buy it. Um, and then what uh, Mr. Kaplan says here um, at the end pretty much solidifies now that if a Federal Reserve chairman of Dallas is telling you that Bitcoin is is a store of value now, well, <laughs> I think that's all you need to know in regards to where the dollar is going, right? So take a listen.
I guess getting right to the right to the punchline, uh, our our base case expectation is that the U.S. economy will grow approximately six and a half percent this year. Uh, a lot of private forecasters are forecasting numbers even more aggressive than that. But the point of it is, uh, we've got substantial fiscal stimulus. We've got a reopening uh, due to vaccinations that are accelerating through the country, even with the J&J issue. Uh, and those vaccinations should outpace the variants. And you're going to see a lot, a lot more mobility and engagement. And so the goods producing industries going into this year, we're doing fine. What, what, what's not been doing fine and where there's been a lot of job loss is in these person-to-person contact industries, service sector industries, you know, restaurants, movie theaters, you name it, uh, sporting events. And increasingly, you're going to see better and better mobility and engagement, and that's going to help fuel fuel this rebound. Um, and so uh, in terms of monetary policy, just uh, I guess the bottom line is we've set benchmarks at the Fed for our asset purchases in that we, we, we need to see substantial further progress, quote unquote, to curtail asset purchases. And uh, we need to meet certain benchmarks to adjust the the um, the Fed funds rate. And, and the bottom line for me on that is uh, we're not out of the woods yet. But as we achieve these benchmarks, I, for one, am going to want to be on our front foot to be removing some of these extraordinary measures and I think the U.S. economy will be far healthier for it if we wean the economy as, at the earliest opportunity off uh, a number of these extraordinary measures. Thank, thank you, Rob. Let me just follow up with you. Uh, do you have any concerns about inflation? And what are those concerns? Yeah. I mean, for starters, your audience is already you're already seeing this. You, you, you're you're going to you are seeing and you will continue to see a price surge this year. But we're already seeing it across the board. Semiconductors, wood products, you name it, food products, where there's issues with logistics, supply chain arrangements, supply demand imbalances. Uh, and, and prices were weak last year. So year over year price increases are gonna, are gonna get people's attention. The question before the House is, as we go into 2022, is this gonna turn out to be a one-time price adjustment and inflation beyond that is gonna be more muted? Or are you gonna, is it going to be more persistent? And I, I don't think it's. A, I, I think the jury's out on that. The cyclical forces are going to be very strong, but I would emphasize the structural forces of technology, technology-enabled disruption, aging population. Those forces haven't gone away. If anything, they've accelerated, and those limit pricing power. So I, I, I'm watching it very carefully, and we'll have to see how these these counter forces play out. There's a difference between being accommodative or even highly accommodative in monetary policy and keeping rates at zero. You, you, can, you can have rates higher than zero and still be very highly accommodative. And so I, I wanted to retain the flexibility to, in the months and years ahead, to remain highly accommodative but, but I, I, do, I did not want to make a commitment to keeping rates at zero, because as you reach full employment and price stability you're at, you, and the neutral rate drifts up, you're actually getting more accommodative as you reach those goals. I, I, don't, I don't know that, uh, that we're going to want to do that in the months and years ahead. 
And the only other comment I'll make is we've said with our new framework, we're not going to be as preemptive as we have in the past to anticipate inflation. That's on one hand. On the other hand, I don't want to get in the mode of being reactive and so reactive that we wind up being late. We, we have tools to combat excesses and imbalances in the financial markets and inflation. But if you use them late, you, you, you can cause a severe slowdown and a severe tightening. And so the, the, the trick is to balance not being unduly preemptive, but also not being so reactive that you're late. And, and, I, I, and I think the, the challenge will be finding that balance. We're in a crisis. And while the unemployment rate has improved to 6%, to Tim's point, the thing that's more relevant to look at is in the lingo referred to as U6. Unemployed plus discouraged workers from, plus people who are just working part-time, those Uber drivers that can't get enough hours, they're working, but they can't get enough hours. And that number is 10.7% in a 160 million person workforce. 10.7% of that is a big number. And so the Fed is, on the one hand, we're trying to work through, as Jim said, and, and, and get that number down. But we've got to balance the side effects of what we're doing. Not, not, one is inflation, but also excesses and imbalances in the financial markets. Uh, you got to keep your eye on that also. Here's what's different from about Texas and the rest of the country. Texas, the downturn mirrored the country. The recovery, by and large, has mirrored the country. Here's the part that's different, is migration of people and firms. And Tim, we're talking, Tim and I were talking about this right before. The, the, what's been stunning is the migration of people and firms to Texas. Because of it, our workforce is growing faster than the rest of the country. Our brain power is growing faster than the rest of the country. We're attracting entrepreneurs. And by the way, it's great for Texas. We're going to we're going to be more innovative. We're going to outgrow the rest of the country. It does make me worried, though, about the country, because if the country is lagging, it's not good for Texas either. But but Texas is a magnet for talent, innovation, brain power. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's playing a pretty good hand right now. So, Rob, let me ask you something that uh, many people have been speculating about and what's on a lot of people's mind. Uh, in your opinion of how central bankers think and, and feel, what, is, what, what, do you, what do you think will, how the, the Fed will respond to Bitcoin, uh, either short term or long term, or to cryptocurrencies more generally? Yeah, so let me, let me, uh, uh, let me say, say this. Uh, the, the Fed is studying a digital currency it's studying this subject, uh, and we should be. Uh, many people have asked about what China just, the experiment they just announced. And the only a comment I'll make is I would differentiate between uh, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and the discussions that are, that are being had about digital currency. Uh, for example, the China experiment, which is tied to the value of the underlying currency. So I think those are two separate things. And so the, the challenges uh, on Bitcoin is how widely will it be adopted? Right now, it's clear it's a store of value. Uh, it's, it's obviously moves a lot in, in value. And it's, uh, so it, it may, that may keep it uh, from spreading too far as a medium of exchange and wide adoption. But that can change and that will evolve, as Tim just went through. The discussions 
uh, around the world on digital currency are slightly different in that a digital currency won't necessarily be a store of value. I, if you're worried about the value of underlying currency, digital currency is likely to be, for example, in China, is tied to the value of the underlying. And then it's a way of ease of payment, uh, event, domestic payments first, uh, uh, getting money to where it's needed. In some cases, you could argue in China, it's a way to monitor flows. Maybe this is a little more of the control that Tim was talking about. Um, and then ultimately, how far will this go? And there's been speculation about global payments and the implications. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful uh, as a central banker to go further than that, other than to say, uh, me and my team, we've studied intensively and we'll keep studying Bitcoin uh, and other uh, cryptocurrencies. And then the Fed has said publicly that it's studying this digital currency issue. But I'll just mention that there may be two different two different things based on whether they're tied to an underlying currency. You know, broader than currency, can you can you talk a little bit about the Bitcoin economy? Any thoughts you have about uh, all either on the macro side or on the micro side? Uh, how the economy will react or change or adapt, new businesses to come up uh, from in this new Bitcoin economy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I'd say the following. Um, th this is an innovation. And anytime, and what's the great thing about the United States, as Tim mentioned, is it, the freedom to innovate capitalism and not just uh, not just Bitcoin, but the technology like blockchain and other the technologies that go along with it, I think have already been the source of lots of new innovation and improvements uh, in the in business and will lead to more opportunity. So we're what I'm doing, honestly, and um, with some help of Britt Harris and others and 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 people that are in this conference is just studying it and trying to learn and understand it. And my job in, in this seat is to understand economic conditions domestically and globally. And I think in order to do that job, I've got to understand Bitcoin and understand all the things Tim's talked about and other things uh, in terms of its evolution.
so that's that's all we got from day one here at the uh, Texas A&M Bitcoin Conference uh, 2021. Um, yeah, there's just so much, um, so much all over the place. It was about 10 hours. Um, it was it was beefy, man. There was a lot there. Um, there is some stuff that we didn't even that we didn't um, play just because uh, I, I, I don't think it was. Um, I honestly don't think it was anything, uh, anything substantial enough, I would say. Uh, yeah, anything that we haven't heard already before. A lot of the stuff that you heard right now is stuff that we we haven't heard before. The stuff that really the stuff that really matters, you know, uh, like we never heard a you know, Federal Reserve chairman ever say that Bitcoin was sort value. <laughs> we never heard Ray Dalio say, why is this a Bitcoin conference? <laughs> We've heard him shield securities before, um, you know. There's just uh, there's just some things that that, that were just undeniable, uh, and then uh, in day two, because there is a day two that we're going to release tomorrow. It's just pouring over ten hours and splicing this up and bringing it to y'all. It's really is really tough. Um, so this is probably the longest I've ever had to. Uh, wait to deliver uh, one of these before. I usually am good about delivering the same day, but I think it's because there's so many great speakers that um, going over them and pouring over them is just it's just uh, a big a big thing. So in day two, we have Parker Lewis. And that's going to be definitely somebody we're going to talk about. Uh, Travis Kling, uh, Jimmy Song. Uh, there's some really great people there. So we're, we're going to we're going to dive into that tomorrow. So, yeah. OK. Yeah, I saw I saw Bitcoin crash. Was it 10K? Uh, was it yesterday evening? Um, I'm so glad I released that Thriller Insights ahead of time. Uh, I would have felt really bad <laughs> if, if we didn't release that because um, pretty much called it. <laughs> pretty much called that drop, which is amazing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's what happens. You know, you stay in the space long enough, you already see everything happen and just kind of play out. That's why that consolidation, it went on far too long. We just kind of saw that playing out in real time, I think. Everybody that had uh, been in this space for a long time knew that drop was coming. And we were expected a red month here in April, so that's no surprise. We're definitely going to do a uh, Thriller Coin Talk. Um, look for that to drop probably on Tuesday. So uh, we're going to talk all about coins, Doge. I know, I know. There's a lot of Doge discussion out there. We'll, we'll talk all about that on Tuesday. Um, we just got to knock out this other one because I think this is the more important stuff this conference there was so much info in here and you don't really get this stuff um, because this kind of stuff is validation and this cements a lot of questions that we had that'll help us going forward okay see you all next time